When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies, the podcast on the Pitcherless Podcast Network, where we take a look at all the players who have had the biggest impact on telling the story of the game of baseball and the myths and legends and, and moments that surround them and make us love them and love the game. My name is Daniel Port. I'm your host. Hey, we're here on a Thursday instead of Friday. I'm in here pinch hitting to kind of help out. So normally we'll go back to Fridays next week. But today I'm here joining you on that day before the weekend, Thursday, Thursday. Now, I got a fun episode for you today. I have been looking forward to doing this episode for really since we started the podcast. And I'm going to try and explain kind of what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks here. And then hopefully you'll be just excited to talk about this player as I am. So. As you, I, I like themes, and I think it's fun to bundle players together, and mainly because, in my opinion, it makes comparisons easier, it helps provide context, and, and often additional insight into how we see players and their place in the game's history. And with younger and current players, we can use these insights to peer into the future, and with players from the past, Current players, or at least players who came after uh, a certain player, can help give better appreciation for those players and help put them in the proper context of the modern game. Sometimes it's just it's easier to bundle players by their output or their career numbers or the path their career took. And some are easy to group by the narrative or the story in baseball, like when we did Prodigy players or things like that. You could even bundle players by the era that they played in, or even by their playing style, so to say. And I want to do something different. This is going to be a little experimental. But over the next month and a half, I want to look at two very different, yet equally compelling player profiles, so to say, and see if there is a modern equivalent for those players. So the first of those prototypes is the player driven by relentless, almost rage or bitterness and an obsessive drive to prove something to the world. They're perfectionists and relentless workers, often with a chip on their shoulder and are driven by the doubters, whether those doubters are real or imagined. They think Michael Jordan or Allen Iverson in basketball, Novak Djokovic or John McEnroe in tennis or Aaron Rodgers in football. The other archetype, which is the one we're going to talk about today, is the king of cool archetype. It's the player everyone wants to emulate, who impacts not just their sport and how we see it, but oftentimes almost the cultural zeitgeist itself. Think Julius Irving or Clyde Drexler in basketball, Andre Agassi in tennis, and Michael Irvin or Joe Montana in football. 
they're still obviously superb athletes and still worked really hard and were uber competitive, but almost played in a way that radiated swagger and looked effortless while doing it. It it looked natural, like doing the thing that they were doing was just what they were born to do. And sometimes these two archetypes will overlap, and we'll even get into that later, but for me in baseball, there's no player that better embodies the king of cool archetype than today's subject, Ken Griffey Jr., I've been looking forward to doing this one since it really started the podcast. And you just look at Griffey, and to this day, his swing is still the most iconic swing I've ever seen. It looked like a swing taught to him by the gods. It was effortless and perfect in every way. It just, if I were to ever redesign the logo for Major League Baseball, by the way, it would be that swing. That's how iconic that swing is. And we can ask. You can with Griffey. You ask questions like, "Is Griffey the goat?" Probably not. Uh, maybe not even amongst his own contemporaries. But I will tell you what, and this goes to that swing. I eventually lost count of how many summer days I spent in my backyard as a kid with my friends. And when we were out playing baseball, all of us, we weren't trying to swing like Barry Bonds or Ted Williams or Babe Ruth. We were trying to swing like Ken Griffey Jr. And, I mean, that barely even touches it, but that's the memories I have. And it was so much more than that. He had the perfect smile, a seemingly effortless joy that seemed to radiate from him anytime he touched a baseball diamond. And it it even goes beyond that. I mean, Griffey was so cool. He genuinely affected what was considered cool at the time, even outside of baseball. Think about it this way, if you'll allow me a quick anecdote. The other day, I had a tennis match outside, and as someone who is follically challenged, I I will say, I have to wear a hat when I play outdoors, or else I get sunburned on my noggin. So, going out to this match, and I saunter over the courts, and I've got on uh, a black Rockies cap turned around backwards, because we're out here in Denver, and one of my opponents, who good-naturedly is joking with me, he says, "No, no one wears their hats like that anymore. And for me, he was older than I was. For me, as a as a child of the the millennial era of the of the '90s, so to say, my first thought was, if it's good enough for Griffey, it's good enough for me. Like to me, that was still cool. Like in my head, thirty years later, it's still cool to to look like Ken Griffey Jr. And you know what? Here's the thing: it is still cool. He's still cool. Everything about Griffey was cool, and it still is. To this day, it's almost become a bit of a, not a gag, but like almost more of a um, the thing we expect Griffey to do. He still shows up to things with his hat turned on backwards. They're like, yeah, oh, I wish I was that cool. It's, it's really something that we haven't seen much in the game of baseball, and really is maybe the closest to the sort of be like Mike sort of attitude that came out from Michael Jordan in, in basketball. And all of this is cultural, right? This is before we even get into how good he was, which, for the record, how good was he, you ask? Thank you for asking. He played for 22 seasons with Seattle and Cincinnati with a brief stop for 40 games with the White Sox. And over that time, his 83.3 wars, 37th all-time amongst all players, and 6th all-time amongst center fielders. His 630 home runs is 7th all-time and 2nd amongst center fielders, finishing just 30 behind Willie Mays. He is 34th all-time in runs scored and 7th all-time amongst center fielders while finishing 
17th all-time in RBI, and third among center fielders with 1,836, and is 16th all-time in total bases. He hit 284 for his career, including eight seasons with a better than 300 average, to go along with a career 907 OPS, which was good for a career 136 OPS+. plus. He had seven seasons with at least 40 home runs and led the league in homers four times. He won an MVP award to go along with 10 gold gloves, seven silver sluggers, 13 all-star game appearances, and three home run derby victories. You name a stat, and Griffey excelled at it. But that even then still isn't telling the whole story. His story is so much more than the numbers. And really it begins with his father and with the Cincinnati Reds. But before we dive too far into Griffey Jr.'s origin story, let's take our first break here. Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. So George... Kenneth Griffey Jr. was born on November 21st in the Summer of Love in Denora, Pennsylvania to Ken Griffey Sr. and Alberta Griffey. In one of those kind of how-can-you-not-be-romantic-about-baseball moments, he shared a birthday with Stan Musial, who was born in the same town in 1920. You couldn't write it that way. Baseball was a part of Griffey Jr.'s life from the very beginning, due to his father making his major league debut with the Cincinnati Reds in 1973 when Griffey Jr. was just four years old. He would spend his childhood in dugouts and clubhouses surrounded by ballplayers, coaches, and fans. And it's always something I find fascinating about when kids of famous athletes go on to become great themselves or have a shot at greatness like Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. Like, they both surpassed their fathers, and they really didn't even need to. It had been easy to just rest on the names of their fathers and grow complacent, or heck, see what the stresses and, and trials of that life were like firsthand and say, nope, that's not for me. It's easy to imagine a kid living in that world, basically they either grow up to hate baseball or love it. And Griffey Jr. was certainly the latter. This meant that Griffey grew up surrounded by the likes of Pete Rose and Joe Morgan. How do you not end up playing baseball after that? So Griffey was a star athlete growing up. And as a standout high school athlete, he was actually, in fact, scouted not only to play baseball, but football as well. And I was very highly pursued to play football, but he felt that he had a better path to success in baseball. So he more aggressively pursued that, and 
he was scouted pretty heavily to play baseball. And apparently one of these scouts was Tom Mooney of the, at that time, last place Seattle Mariners. And after seeing Griffey hit one of the longest home runs he had ever seen a high schooler hit, he was convinced that the Mariners should take him with the first pick in the draft. Now, to give you an idea of just how highly touted he was, Bobby Cox, one of the greatest managers of all time, I believe at the time he was the general manager of the Braves, called him the best prospect he had ever seen in his life at the time. That's how good Griffey looked. But there was a roadblock, and this is going to come up throughout Griffey's career, but scared of taking a high school player if their previous high school pick had flopped the year before, the Mariners subjected Griffey to a psychological test, and he fails it miserably. Despite Griffey's aversion to the test, he would end up retaking it and actually manages to pass the second time, which mollified Seattle's concerns enough for them to make uh, Griffey the number one pick. And this was, from the moment baseball came into his life, this was Griffey's dream, was be to go number one overall in the draft. In, in fact, he actually took a pay cut to make it happen. But he does go to number one overall uh, there in 1987. Now, that psychological test and what it pointed at, that isn't going to go away. So really throughout the beginning of his career especially, but really throughout his whole career, Griffey would struggle with his mental health. But again, especially throughout his first year as a pro there in the minors, he had a little big shoes to fill and a lot of pressure. And the way he said it was that everything felt like he was constantly being criticized by everyone. Uh, he, he was quoted in an interview for the Seattle Times was saying, it seemed like everyone was yelling at me in baseball. And then I came home and everyone was yelling at me there, said Griffey. I got depressed. I got angry. I didn't want to live. On the road, he experienced many social hardships, including racism. And at home, he began acting out. And I want to stop for a second here real quick before I go on and throw out a, a trigger warning for those who are triggered by talks of suicide or hurting themselves if this is true for you, you might want to skip ahead a minute or two. Just be careful as you're listening. Uh, it's an important part of Griffey's story, so I, I want to talk about it, but I also don't want to uh, put anyone in harm's way, so just take care of yourself and skip ahead if you need to. In January of 1988, this all comes to a head for Griffey, and Griffey Jr. attempts to take his own life by taking 177 aspirin. He winds up in an intensive care unit, and supposedly his father did not react well initially to the incident. It appeared in many ways, and we've seen this sort of throughout many baseball players' careers, I think of like George Brett as a good example, that Griffey's father was a demanding man and really pushed him hard to succeed in baseball. And there's a large, probably, chunk of Griffey's success that is owed to that pressure, but it also clearly took its toll on the young man. Because it's worth remembering at this point, he's 17 years old, right? So he's 17 years old, father's a famous baseball player, he's playing professional baseball now at this point. It's a lot of pressures for a 17-year-old who, in a lot of ways it seems, was driven mostly by trying to please his, his dad. And then in many ways this sort of spreads out into a a deep desire to please everyone else too. And that's just kind of way in a 17-year-old. After getting out of the the hospital, Griffey would actually move out of his parents' house. This kind of provided some separation. And slowly yet surely, the 
these these two men, the, the Griffies, so to say, the Kens, would come to a place of understanding over time, but they needed uh, a little bit of separation, a little bit of a buffer between them to do. And despite all of this, though, by the way, Griffey rises pretty quickly through the rankings of the minors. Starting off lower A ball in Bellingham, he hits 313 with 14 home runs in 54 games. In 1988, Baseball America ranked him as the number one prospect in the Mariners' system, singing his praises as a true five-tool player. In that year, he's promoted to A-ball and continues to rake, hitting 338 with 11 home runs in 58 games, earning promotion to Double-A Vermont. In 17 games there, he hits 279 with two home runs, and that's all really the Mariners needed to see. Coming into the season, Baseball America had reinforced their number one ranking by calling him the best Number one draft pick since the draft was started in 1966. That's how high Baseball America was on Ken Griffey Jr. Now, during the spring training of 1989, Griffey hits 359 with a 15-game hitting streak and makes the team to begin the season. Now, this was extra special because, as I mentioned, living up to his father's expectations is a big driving force for the young Griffey Jr. And while Griffey Sr. was still playing in the majors and... It had long been a dream of Griffey Jr. to play with. His dad hinted that this would likely be his last season. So it was a make-or-break moment for Griffey Jr. And indeed, he would make the team. And on April 3rd, 1989, he would make his debut against the Athletics. In his first at-bat, he crushes a deep double. Griffey was quoted as having said, We got to Oakland, and man, I'm nervous, Griffey recalled. Dave Stewart's on the mound, and he could have rolled the ball up there and it would have swung at it, which would seem to have worked out pretty well for him if that was his approach. Uh, A week later, he hits his first home run. He takes off in Seattle immediately. He is a true young phenomenon. At just 19 years old, Griffey has one heck of a rookie season, hitting 264 with a 748 OPS, which was good for a 108 OPS plus with 16 home runs and 23 doubles, with 61 RBIs and 61 runs scored in 127 games. He was easily the front runner for Rookie of the Year for most of the year, until a broken hand suffered when he slammed his hand against a wall during a fight with his girlfriend, cost him a month, and the award. He ended up finishing third behind pitchers Greg Olson and Tom Gordon that year, and he had a decent argument for the award anyway, since he finished tied with them both in war that season. Heck, technically, sixth place finisher Kevin Brown led actually led all AL rookies with 3.6 war, so he probably should have won. But Griffey has a good argument for getting rookie of the year, and Griffey was still struggling with depression and homesickness at this point, and this was a sign that it got the better of him at times. This sort of outburst where he broke his hand, and it's also worth remembering he's just 19 at the time. And suddenly the responsibility of saving a moribund franchise that weighed on his shoulders. And then you throw in trying to meet his father's expectations and meet his father's legacy as well. And that's a lot, again, on a 19-year-old. Now, heading into the 1990 season, at this point the hype is at a fever pitch for Mariners fans. And Griffey absolutely delivers in his sophomore season, hitting 300 with an 847 OPS, which was good for a 136 OPS+. plus. With 22 home runs, 28 doubles, 7 triples, 16 stolen bases, 80 RBIs, and 92 runs scored across 155 games. He's named to his first All-Star game and wins his first gold glove. Perhaps, though, the true highlight of the year was getting to play with his father on the same team. 
So that year, the Reds released Griffey Sr. partway through the year, and the Mariners would sign him, hoping it would at least help keep uh, Griffey Jr. in a good mental place and whatnot. And on August 31st, he would officially appear in a game hitting back-to-back with his son. And in his first game as a Mariner, the duo would actually hit back-to-back singles. And later on, actually in September, they would hit back-to-back home runs, which is just one of those things that, again, how romantic about baseball when you get to see a father and a son hit back-to-back home runs in a professional baseball game. It's just incredible. Griffey was quoted as saying, I wanted to cry or something, said Junior after the game. It just seemed like a father-son game, like we're out playing catch in the backyard. But we're actually playing a real game. It's a, I think, like, feel the dreams. And baseball sometimes is a story about fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, sometimes moms and daughters. But it's about that parental, that parental progeny sort of relationship in, in a lot of ways. And we tell stories about baseball often using those trappings. And then see it happen in real life is really powerful. It's really something special. Again, how are you not romantic about baseball when you see something like this? Now, it would be some time before the Mariners would make the playoffs, but at this point, it's pretty clear the future is bright. There's finally a light at the end of the tunnel for Mariners fans. Now, at the end of the year, Griffey Sr. would retire. There's 51 games of really every kid's dream right there. Incredible. 1991 was Griffey's first true breakout year as he hits 327 with a 926 OPS, which is good for a 155 OPS plus to go with 22 home runs, 42 doubles, 100 RBIs, 76 runs scored, and 18 stolen bases. He's an all-star again and wins both a gold glove and a silver slugger award. Now, in particular, he really shined in the second half of the season, hitting 373 with 13 home runs and 64 RBIs. And we always talk on the podcast about how there's always someone who is like the key or a key for unlocking a great player's true potential. They sort of provide the final piece or the final advice or tutelage that acts as the turning point for the player. In Griffey's case, this apparently was teammate Harold Reynolds, who reminded Griffey the whole reason he was doing this, the whole reason he was up here, the whole reason he was playing was because he loved the baseball. Again, it's a recurring theme. There was a lot on Griffey. There's a lot of pressure. He was the face of the franchise already. He was battling off with the media who probably had outsized expectations for a 21-year-old ball player in terms of maturity and, and you know understanding of how to reach his full potential. And you know, Griffey would say, We were in Toronto right before the break, and Harold sat me down, Griffey said. He told me I wasn't having any fun, and he was right. And... This really turned Griffey around and got him to that sort of smiling, happy-go-lucky player that we think of when we think of Ken Griffey Jr. And while the Mariners wouldn't make the playoffs again, they did finish with a winning record for the first time in team history. And at this point, Griffey's already the king of cool in baseball. He was becoming a household name. Heck, he was actually on an episode of The Simpsons that year, and he recorded a rap song with local rapper Kid Sensation. That's how big Griffey was starting to get in terms of the public awareness of him. Now, 1992 brought back some of Griffey's mental health struggles. Again, there was just a lot of stress building up on him, but also over the potential sale or relocation of the team. And now, not only was he charged with saving the team in terms of 
performance, but also in terms of saving the team, in terms of keeping them in Seattle. And so just more and more pressure and more and more expectations on that weighs on him quite a bit throughout the year. And he talks about struggling a bit with his mental health throughout the years uh, with that. Now, it doesn't affect his playing at all. See, it's 308 with an 896 OPS, which is good for a 149 OPS plus, along with 27 home runs and 39 doubles with four triples, 103 RBIs, 83 runs, and 10 stolen bases. He wins his third gold glove and is named to the All-Star game for the third year in a row. He ends up winning the MVP in the game, hitting a homer and a single and a double to just barely miss hitting for the cycle in the game. Runaway MVP, easily. Now, if you didn't already know who Griffey was at this point, after breaking out winning All-Star MVP in what's one of the most watched games of the year every year, now you did. And we, we hadn't even, we're not even getting started yet. It's about to reach a whole nother level in terms of both Griffey's performance and his, his popularity throughout the country. In 1993, Griffey becomes the youngest player ever to reach 100 home runs. And overall, it was a season to remember. He hits 309 with an unreal 1.025 OPS, which is good for a 171 OPS plus with 45 home runs, 38 doubles, 109 RBIs, 113 runs, and 17 stolen bases. He's an all-star yet again, and he participates in his first home run derby along with winning another gold glove and silver slugger award. If you get a chance, go look up on YouTube Griffey's home run derby from this year. It's incredible. So this it takes place in Camden Yards, and Camden Yards is this big brick building past its right field wall. You've probably seen it. It's iconic. It's gorgeous. It's so cool. I love it as a feature in Camden Yards. But so Griffey comes up, and he is standing there in all of his glory, just oozing coolness. He's already got his hat backwards. It's just it's one of the coolest things that ever happened to baseball. And he just blasts a ball. 445 feet, which was a record at the time, off of it bounces the ball off of the freaking building. It's awesome. It's an iconography moment. If aliens landed on Earth and asked me to show them something that was the definition of cool in 1993, I would show them the clip of Griffey in this home run derby. That's how it just felt as a kid. I remember and just watching it, I felt that all coming back. I like we all wanted to be that that guy. Now, he finishes fifth in MVP voting despite leading the AL hitters in war. Frank Thomas won that year, and while he had an impressive year hitting 317 with 41 home runs, he was a full 2.6 war worse than Griffey that year. In fact, the closest to Griffey that season was John Olerud with 7.8 war. Griffey should have absolutely won the MVP that year. This isn't even a question. He so thoroughly outpaced everyone in war that it really feels like highway robbery that he didn't win his first MVP here in 1993. Now, 1994 is a wild year for Griffey. First, he becomes a father, and that was very important to him, knowing how important his father was to him. And then the season starts, and he just picks up right where he left off. He continues blasting home runs, and then Griffey is having an all-time season. And then... Of course, it's 1994. We know what happens. The stupid strike rears its ugly head in history once again. Now, obviously, I understand the machinations for it and why it happened. But as a historian, as a baseball historian who's talking about players' legacies, 1994 drives me crazy. It throws so many weird curveballs into talking about players that it just drives me crazy. But 
this really ruins, in a lot of ways, a really potentially historic season for Griffey. Now, while technically Matt Williams of the Giants was ahead of him in home runs, Griffey had an AL leading 40 home runs when the season came to an abrupt halt thanks to the strike at 111 games. He was right on pace to take a shot at breaking Roger Maris' single-season home run record that had been untouched since the 1960s. Would he have pulled it off? Who knows? There's always injuries or cold streaks, but if anyone could have done it that year, it would have been Griffey. He was just absolutely mashing the ball the whole year. And there's another aspect of this, too. It's worth noting if he had hit another 20 home runs, 21, to surpass Maris, that would have pulled him within maybe 5 to 10 home runs of surpassing Willie Mays for 6th all-time on the home run list. And you never know, he gets a little more health at some point in his career, you know, whatnot. He could have gotten up to number 6 there on that list, which obviously is is huge for those sort of legacy rankings, so to say. Now, it's also worth noting, we missed a bunch of games in 1995 so because of the strike. And so if you think he might have hit 10 home runs during that time period, that's it right there. He, he gets ahead of Mays. So, like I said, has a huge effect on how we look at Griffey's legacy and career. Now, overall, Griffey hits 323 on the season with a 1.076 OPS, which is good for a 171 OPS plus with 40 home runs, 90 RBIs, 94 runs, 24 doubles, and 11 stolen bases. And when you think about it, it was essentially two-thirds of a season. He's an all-star yet again, a ditto for winning another gold glove and silver slugger award as well. He finishes second in MVP voting, and that, that is the correct result. Because, well, Frank Thomas would win yet again. The truth is the award should have gone to my boy Kenny Lofton, who led the AL in war with 7.2 war. Don't worry, Kenny, I got your back. Uh, he definitely should have won the award that year. But it wasn't just on the field where Griffey left his mark, though. He was in movies this year like Little Big League and was on TV in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Heck, he even headlined one of the most heralded baseball series of video games in history. And that is the one, the only, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, which I lost track of how many hours I spent playing that game growing up, as did most people my age. It's really just another reminder of how embedded in the cultural awareness of the world Ken Griffey Jr. really was. He was everywhere. Now, 1995 was a historic year for the Mariners. It was a weird one for Griffey. Early on in the season, he breaks his wrist, making one of the most iconic catches of all time in center field, known as the Spider-Man catch. YouTube it. It's absolutely remarkable. Obviously, warning. You don't see the. You don't see like his like hand flopping around or anything like that. But it, it is worth noting that that Griffey breaks his wrist on the play. But it's an incredible catch. It's one of the most incredible catches I've ever seen. Flying into the wall at top speed, Griffey makes an incredible catch with every limb stretched out in various directions. It's one of the best center field plays ever made. It's genuinely on every list of the best outfield catches ever made. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned, Griffey does break his wrist on the play, so he misses 73 games. This starts a trend we'll see throughout his career, uh, for better or for worse. He was an incredible fielder. Uh, easily one of the best center fielders, not the best center fielder of his generation, if not close to of all time. But he only knew one way to play center field, and that was all out. And given the way his body gave out later in his career, it feels obvious the toll injuries this took on him along with just a general wear and tear of center field, which is an incredibly demanding position, physically speaking. 
and you maybe start to see that here and some of these injuries that would linger his whole his whole career. He would return in August while the Mariners were in the heart of a pennant race, one that they would win. With Griffey hitting 10 home runs with an 840 OPS and 27 RBIs and 45 games down the stretch, they win the AL West for the first time in team history. And the big moments weren't done yet. So in the ALDS, they faced the always daunting New York Yankees. Now, I didn't really know this, but apparently, according to several Mariners fans I know, the Mariners hated the Yankees, and Mariners fans hated them right along with them. And it's a fantastic series, but was not easy, as the Yankees would take games one and two, despite Griffey homering in both games. Then Randy Johnson leads the Mariners back into the series in game three, and they would never look back. Game four was certainly Edgar Martinez's game. He has a three-run home run and a grand slam in the game. But Griffey parked one too, and they needed every run they could get to uh, get the win 11-8 to in that game. Now, game five, though, this is when the magic happens. Okay, so entering the bottom of the eighth inning, it's 4-2 to two Yankees before Griffey homers to bring the Mariners within a run. They would tie it up in that same inning on a wild pitch, and eventually they would head into extras. In the 11th inning, the Yankees would retake the lead, which set the stage for the ultimate comeback. First, Joey Cora gets a drag bunt single while definitely avoiding a tag from Don Mattingly. It's an incredible slide by Joey Cora. Griffey then promptly follows that up with a sharp uh, single back up the middle, which left things at, with runners at first and third. Up steps the hero from game four in Edgar Martinez, who then rips a double to left field. This is an iconic double. It's called the double. If you look at a Mariners fan, really most baseball fans, and you just say the double, they know what they're talking about. It's this hit. It's this moment, right? Griffey, and it's worth noting, so Griffey's on first, and Griffey was always fast until injuries started piling up later on. But here, he just flew. It almost looks like at times his feet don't touch the ground. That's how fast he's running. And there was never any question on whether or not he was going for home. And honestly, watching it, there was no doubt he was scoring. From the moment he hit second base, he was scoring. And I watched the replay, and honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen someone run so fast. It's incredible. It's just absolutely incredible to watch to this day. And I was reading this oral history that was put together and written by Matthew Halverson for the Seattle Met. And so Griffey was quoted in this oral history saying, if I were to come around second and just pull up, then the story would be different. But these are my brothers that I'm trying to score for. It wasn't about, hey, this could be history. It was, we've done it all year. This is the only way we knew how to play. That Which is just speaks to the mentality that team, speaks to Griffey's mentality and how much he wanted to do this for his team and whatnot, which feels so very in character for him. Now, uh, fellow Mariner Andy Benes said, I'm sure people have run faster, but it looked like the ball was in slow motion and Junior was going 100 miles an hour. Mike Blowers said, that's the fastest I've ever seen Junior run. And Doug Strange chimed in saying, that's the fastest I've ever seen a human run. And that's really how it felt. It felt like he had summoned something deeper, something that was almost extra, like past human ability. That, that's the kind of thing Griffey did, and, and it felt that way in the moment. It was really something else, and, you know, that it was it. That was a walk-off, so the, the upstart Mariners had bested the mighty Yankees. And if you want to have an idea of just how much this moment meant to Mariners fans, 
go back and listen to, I want to say it's the third episode ever of this podcast, where I had J.R. Keynes, he's a member of our uh, graphics team here at PitcherList. I, I had him on the podcast to talk about Edgar Martinez, and we walked through the double. And you can hear in his voice just how much that moment meant to him as a baseball fan. That's what it's all about, right? Like, these moments are, it's what this whole podcast is all about. It's what being a sports fan is all about. It's in these moments and how they stay with you for life that make sports important, that make them special. And definitely go listen to that episode. It's well worth the listen. And you'll really get to get an idea of just how impactful this moment really was. Now, overall, Griffey has an incredible series, hitting 391 with five home runs and a 1.488 OPS and seven RBIs across five games. And the Mariners, for the first time ever, are in the second round of the playoffs. Now, unfortunately, the Cinderella story would come to an end as Cleveland was the team of destiny that year, and they would win the series in six games. Griffey was great in that series uh, as well, hitting 313 with another homer and a 1.011 OPS despite the series' loss. Even if they don't reach the promised land that year, it's a genuinely magical season, and one that enshrined Griffey in both baseball and Mariners lore for all time. Now jumping to 1996, this is a season full of hope and excitement for Mariners fans, and Griffey doesn't disappoint after getting a $34 million deal to become the highest paid player in baseball. In 140 games, he hits 303 with a 1.020 OPS, which is good for a 154 OPS plus to go along 49 home runs, 125 runs scored, and an insane 140 RBIs. That's equal to a, essentially an RBI per game played. Uh, that's insane. And that's tied for 56, 56th ever in a single season. It's tied for the 42nd most RBIs since 1945 and the 35th most since 1970. Only 14 of those hitters since 1970 have done so while hitting more than 48 home runs, and just 20 of them have did so while hitting 300. It's just a a truly remarkable season. He's named in the All-Star Game while winning another Gold Glove and Silver Slugger Award. He finishes fourth in the MVP voting, but is absolutely jobbed after leading the league in war with a fantastic 9.7 war, which was over double the war of the winner, Juan Gonzalez. I'll say that again. He had over double Juan Gonzalez's war and still doesn't win. How does he not win MVP in 1997? How? I do not understand it. Looking back at MVP voting with war has certainly revealed some all-time screw jobs, but this one takes the cake in my opinion. I, I honestly strain to figure out what the reasoning was behind this. I just can't. I, I, I look for things. Griffey was a sensitive guy. He often waged a war of words with the press. So maybe that had a factor of things. We've seen that happen to other players before, since the press is who votes for the MVP. Maybe it was because the Mariners only won 87 games that year and finished second in the division. So we could see, even though 87 games is a great season, they finished in second. Labeling them as a disappointment could be a factor, even though I, I wouldn't look at it that way. Maybe it was because we didn't really have a great way of evaluating defense back then, so it was hard to put a finger on calling him one of the best defenders in the league. Who knows? But I know that Griffey should have won that year. There's not even a question in my mind that Griffey should have won that year. Now, the Mariners do miss the playoffs, like I mentioned, but Griffey is the biggest player on the planet now at this point. There, There is no one bigger. To me, that's the other reason why it's so baffling that he didn't win. He's 
the most popular player in the world right now. Think about it this way. This, that year, Nike launched a campaign for Griffey that was framed literally as a campaign for president. And a lot of people were like, he'd probably win. That's how popular he was. It's absolutely incredible. Now, in 1997, here's the crazy thing. He's even better than the year before, hitting 304 with a 1.028 OPS, which is good for a 165 OPS plus to go along with an AL leading 56 home runs and 125 runs and an MLB leading 147 RBIs, which was tied for the 15th best season by RBIs since 1970. It was the perfect time to have the best season of your career as the new Mariners ballpark had just been built. And even though they weren't playing over there yet, it had been dubbed the house that Griffey built, which again tells you all you need to know about the attention and aura that swirled around him. He again is an all-star. And as expected, he wins Silver Slugger and a Golden Glove. More importantly, though, this time, he's appropriately rewarded for his excellence by winning the MVP by unanimous vote. Now, while Roger Clemens would lead the league in a landslide but in war with uh, 12.1, the MVP so rarely goes to pitchers in the modern era for good reason. And Griffey had nearly two war more than the next hitter in Frank Thomas, making a genuine no-brainer vote. It felt like getting a huge weight off his shoulders for Griffey, who was quoted as saying, all my life in professional baseball, people said he could be better, Griffey said. This award means a lot. And it's an interesting side to Griffey. I think I talked about how, while we're talking uh, over the next couple weeks about these two different archetypes, so to say, they cross over each other at times, right? You always see the this smiling, happy-go-lucky, natural baseball. And there's still a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And this is true for Griffey. He always had the smiles and the cool swagger, but he did have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, and it drove him. He, he had these expectations he had to meet. And it's not to say he resented them, but he certainly at times felt that weight of criticism and took it to heart and at times drove him and at times held him back. But it was certainly something that factored into Griffey and the way he looked at the world and the way he played baseball. Now, the Mariners would make the playoffs that year, but both Griffey and the Mariners struggle in the ALDS against Baltimore, who wins in four games while Griffey hits just 133 with no home runs. And unfortunately, it would be the last time he makes the playoffs in a Seattle uniform. Now, in case you're wondering if Griffey could possibly back up his MVP season, he definitely does so in 1998, where he hits 284 with a 977 OPS, which is good for a 150 OPS plus, as well as an AL leading 56 home runs with 120 runs and 146 RBIs, which go along with 20 stolen bases and 33 doubles. He's an all-star, and he wins the home run derby again, by the way. Wins, rinse and repeat. He wins the gold glove and silver slugger yet again. Shocking. He almost didn't go to the home run derby, by the way, for a variety of reasons. But apparently, after being booed by the crowd at the all-star game, he said he didn't like to get booed. And so he, he walked back in, grabbed his cap, came back out with a turned on backwards with a bat, and not only participates in the home run derby, but lo and behold, he ends up winning the whole darn thing. He hits his 300th home run this season, becomes the youngest player since Jimmy Fox to reach that plateau, but then later in the season becomes the youngest player to hit 350 home runs. He finishes fourth in MVP voting, and even though Griffey wasn't the highest war player in the AL that year, and so shouldn't have won, that is the case, 
Somehow, Juan freaking Gonzalez wins again despite finishing 15th in war that year. I don't know. Juan Gonzalez may have been a, a great guy. Who knows? I don't know if he had some kind of blackmail on, on MVP voters. But, I mean, my gosh. 15th in war that year. And he somehow... Anyways, this is not Juan Gonzalez's episode. This is Griffey's. So, moving on. Despite Griffey's great season, though, the Mariners win just 76 games and miss the playoffs. Now, the last year of the 20th century marked one of the last few great Griffey years, unfortunately, and his last year in a Mariners uniform. He'd play 160 games that season, and while hitting 285 with 48 home runs and a 960 OPS, which was good for a 139 OPS plus along with 134 RBIs and 123 runs scored. He's an all-star for the 10th straight season, and he wins his third home run derby. And same for the Gold Glove Award, and he wins his 7th and final Silver Slugger Award. Now, it's a bit of a tumultuous year, as the Mariners would move that season from the Classic Kingdom to Safeco Field, which was rumored to be far less friendly to home run hitters, and many speculated that Griffey would look to leave because of this. And... It turns out there was something to those rumors, as the Mariners announced at the end of the year that Griffey had turned down an eight-year extension and had officially requested a trade to a team closer to home. This had been down, I believe, in Florida. He had full veto power on any trade based on his playing experience and made pretty clear he had only one destination in mind. And this was the team where his father had become a star, good old Cincinnati, Ohio. That offseason, he's traded to the Reds, for Brett Tomko, Mike Cameron, Antonio Perez, and Jake Meyer. Upon arrival, the Reds signed him to a nine-year extension, and Griffey was quoted in his first press conference once he got to Cincinnati saying, I'm finally home. This is my hometown. I grew up here. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It's where you feel happy. Cincinnati is the place where I thought I would be happy. Now, given his ties to in history with the team in, the, in, the, in this town, in that field, that makes a lot of sense. Griffey has a f- great first year in Southern Ohio, hitting 271 with 40 home runs, 118 RBIs, 100 runs with a 942 OPS, which is good for a 133 OPS+. plus. He makes the All-Star game that year, but for the first time since he was a rookie, he doesn't win a gold glove and he doesn't win the Silver Slugger. Now, there's some basis for this. His defense has started to falter a bit. And in what would ultimately become a bit of a repeating theme for Griffey's career at the Reds, he would later reveal he was playing through a nagging hamstring injury all season long. You're going to hear me say things like hamstring injury a lot from here on out. This would become a reoccurring problem for Griffey. The Reds win 85 games that season but finish second in the National League. They missed the playoffs in Griffey's first season wearing the red pinstripes. Overall, though, there was definitely hope in the air with Griffey in town, and man, unfortunately, it just wasn't meant to be. It would have been such a cool story, but it just wasn't meant to be. Griffey's good in 2001 when he's able to play, as the hamstring injury that hampered him the year before continued to haunt him. He missed opening day and would end up on the disabled list in April. Now, I remember this, actually, because it was all over the news. It was all over SportsCenter, Griffey getting hurt, and when did Griffey come back? And it was a huge point of contention amongst fans and talking heads. And for one thing, I feel like no one back then really understood hamstring injuries and how you can't just play through uh, them or get an idea of how badly they hamper your ability to perform athletically. Because I remember just hearing uh, and seeing a lot of opinions that, like, Griffey just needed to suck it up and play through the pain. And that's just not how it works, Uh 
the hamstrings are pretty crucial part of your legs working and you can't just like push through an injury to your hamstring like that it's just, it's just not how that works <laughs> then on griffey when he returned it was clear especially in the field that he had returned far too early and was playing through pain which led now to more second guessing but in the other direction people asking did he come back too soon should he have come back all these different things and this obviously just the the yo-yoing of of opinions here really gets under griffey's skin as he said they gave me the green light to play if i blow out but i'm going to do it under my own terms which was a, a reoccurring theme for griffey's whole whole life is that even though he seemed to have based a lot of his, his mental health and his feelings based on the approval of others and, and meeting expectations he did still want to do it his way and, and on his terms. And I suppose this is the other side of that chip on the shoulder. While you can say that it got him to where he was, you know, by pushing him and, and driving him, and it did, absolutely. It also maybe drove him a little too much. He probably heard all the voices and all the criticism, and, and it pushed him to come back too early before he was ready. And this is going to have huge ramifications on his career. In 111 games that year, He's good. Like I said, he's good when he plays. He hit 286 with 22 home runs, 65 RBIs, 57 runs, and 898 OPS, which is good for 124 uh, or 124 OPS. I can say that like a human being. Now, that injury bad luck carries over into 2002 as it brings even worse injury luck. Just six games into the season, Griffey is making a sharp turn while being caught in a rundown, and he tears his patella. And I can tell you, I've done this. I tore my ACL and my patella when I was in high school playing football and wrestling. And it's one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in my life. And I, like, oh, gosh. Uh, even saying it makes me a little nauseous. Obviously, this is a huge... Sometimes you don't come back from this injury. Now, this gets crucial because now most folks would miss the whole season. They'd have surgery and they sometimes you're talking 8 to 12 months recovery sometimes for an injury like that but you have the surgery because you're better off in the long run right you but griffey was i don't know if he's feeling the pressure to live up to that contract or maybe his dad's legacy or maybe just i mean maybe the man just wasn't wired in a way that will let him accept anything less than being on the ball field but griffey opts for rehab instead and he tries to play in roughly 70 games that season he ends up hitting just 264 with 8 home runs, 23 RBIs, and 17 runs scored on the year. With 784 OPS, which was still good for a 103 OPS plus, but obviously not what we expect out of Griffey. And like I said, I, I feel like between the coming back too early from the hamstring injury to hurting his, his knee, these are the two injuries that would just, I feel like, create the cascade of injuries that would obviously would end his career and derail it in a, in a large way. And I think of, we've seen this with, say, a Troy Tulowitzki, where you get the first injury, and it's the hamstring injury, but then you compensate for the hamstring injury because you're playing hurt, and then that gets your knee all out of whack, and then you hurt your knee, and then that builds into, now your hamstring's bad, and your knee's bad, and now what do you do, and does that build to other things? And, spoiler alert, it will. And I just, I've said this before when it comes to concussions, or other issues that, like, one of the jobs to me of coaches is to be the adult. Like, your job is to look at this guy and go, no, you shouldn't be doing this. You need to do what's best for you and for the team, right? Because they had made a huge investment in him. He was on a, what, this, like, year two or year three of a nine-year contract. But 
that's they'll let him play. And you got to think that that patella injury is at least in part coming from the hamstring issues and things like that, because we know those things build off of each other. Now, the other part of this is there starts to circulate rumors that the Reds were disappointed in what they'd gotten out of Griffey so far and that they were shopping him in the offseason. Obviously, we've mentioned that Griffey, in a way that comes with no judgment, is more sensitive to these sort of things. And this really rubbed him the wrong way there in Cincinnati and definitely had an effect on him. Now, in 2003, he comes back and experiences a litany of injuries. I remember when this happened too. Dislocates his shoulder out in the field. He suffers two torn hamstrings, a re-aggravation of patella injury, and eventually in July, a season-ending rupture in a tendon in his ankle. And again, it's hard to not think. Obviously, the dislocated shoulder is one thing. I want to say, if I remember correctly, he did like diving for a ball. You look at the two torn hamstrings, a re-aggravation of patella injury, and eventually that, that ankle injury. Like That all just seems connected to me, and I just feel like at some point, these just are going to keep adding up and adding up and adding up. He was very good in 2003 when he played. He had 13 home runs in 53 games with a 936 OPS. But again, those injuries are just adding up. They're going to eventually truly take their toll. Now, 2004 would see Griffey eclipse the 500 home run mark. But in August, he would tear his hamstring yet again, which would end his season after just 83 games. He's solid in those games. He hits 20 home runs with an 864 OPS, which is good for a 123 OPS plus that year. And he was even named in the All-Star game. But it's clear that there's a huge physical and emotional toll starting to get taken on Griffey here in that situation. Now, he saw slightly better health in 2005, but still ended up having his season ended in September by yet another ankle injury. Overall, he plays in 128 games, and in these games... He looks like the Griffey of old. He hits 301 with a 946 OPS, which is good for a 144 OPS plus with 35 home runs, 92 RBIs, 85 runs, and 30 doubles. I mean, really, for the first time since since the turn of the millennium, Griffey earned some MVP votes. Heck, he wins Comeback Player of the Year this year, which Griffey said was incredibly important to him and really meant a lot. And this whole year was a good reminder of what he still could do when he was healthy. And maybe an even sadder reminder of the Griffey years we were being robbed of. Because at this point, it's worth noting, Griffey's 36 years old, which makes this success and this comeback even more impressive. But you just have to wonder what it would have been if he hadn't missed most of the 2000s due to injuries. He had 630 home runs. Could he have gotten the 700? Could he have pushed for Aaron's home run record? Who knows? There's all kinds of what-ifs going on about this if he just could have stayed healthy. Now, in 2006, though, clearly playing most of a full season probably took its toll. The injuries come back and rear their ugly head again, as knee issues limit him to just 109 games where he hit 252 with an 802 OPS, which is good for 99 OPS+. Plus. It's actually the first time since his rookie year he'd hit below 100 OPS+. Plus. He did manage 27 home runs that season in roughly oh, about two-thirds of a season, basically. In 2007, we saw mostly Ish Griffey, playing 144 games where he hit 277 with 30 home runs and 24 doubles. He even makes the All-Star game that year, again, putting up a 869 OPS, which is good for a 119 OPS+. plus. It's also during the season that Griffey would request to wear Jackie Robinson's number, which is actually was the impetus and what started the tradition we, we have now of wearing Jackie Robinson's number, where every player wears it, on the day it was retired every year. 
that that was a brainchild of Griffey's, which is a really cool part of his legacy. And that wasn't even all, though, that year. He he actually makes his return uh, to Seattle that year. He plays a game in Seattle. And the Mariners hold a huge ceremony for him. And it ended up including a four-minute standing ovation that actually brought tears to to Griffey's eyes. Just a really moving moment in, in baseball and a sign of just how much he meant to those fans and how much they meant to him. Now, 2008 would bring an end to Griffey's Reds tenure as he would be traded in June after hitting a 600th home run to the White Sox, where he would actually help them make the playoffs that year. It's the first time in 11 years he had seen the playoffs. Now, unfortunately, both the White Sox and Griffey didn't perform particularly well in the playoffs, which they were swept by the Rays in three games, unfortunately. Now, at the end of this year, Griffey's a free agent really for the first time in his career at 39 years old, and he decides to sign back up with the Mariners to give it at least one last hurrah. He plays 117 games in 2009 and is 19 home run and hit, he hits 19 home runs, but his average plummets to 214. He had a huge impact on the team that year from a clubhouse standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, and so this prompts the Mariners to bring him back for 2010. And at this point, he's 40 years old. It was taking its toll. Not a young man anymore, obviously. A report and surfaced that he had missed a pinch hit at bat at one point in the year because he missed because he fell asleep in the clubhouse. And that's when you start to know maybe it's time to to hang them up. And June of that year, while Griffey still felt like he could contribute to the team, he felt like he didn't want to be a distraction. So he finally felt it was time. He leaves the team and retires from the game. Now, his life in baseball is far from over as he would stick around with the Mariners as a special consultant. He served various roles as like an ambassador for Major League Baseball over the years. He would actually serve as a coach for the World Baseball Classic team in 2023, which is really special, honestly. You watch this current generation of, of players, these stars, who all would have at least somewhat grown up watching Griffey and, and seeing them get coached by him was really cool. They are the biggest stars in the game right now. And many of them were genuinely awestruck. There's a part where there's a video of him hitting batting practice for fun. And they're just all huddled around in, in awe at every home run. And just, it, it was really something else. It was very cool. I definitely uh, go see if you can find that video. But it was, it was a neat thing to see. Now, in 2016, he's elected to the Hall of Fame with 99.32% of the vote. I, I don't understand how someone could have not voted for Ken Griffey Jr., but it should have been unanimous. And that same year, the Mariners retire as number 24. Now, overall, it's hard to find a more impactful player on the story of baseball than Ken Griffey Jr. If you were to try and tell that story, especially of baseball in the 1990s, without including Griffey, it would feel empty. Like it's missing its heart and its soul. That's the impact Griffey had. If you ask anyone the name of a baseball player from the 90s, almost everyone's first answer is going to be Ken Griffey Jr. And and I will remind you, again, an entire generation of fans that spent their childhoods dreaming of swinging the bat like Griffey, they still wear their hats backwards like a salute, like a, a way to say thank you to Ken Griffey Jr., not just for the memories, but for being the reason so many of us fell in love with the great game of baseball. Uh, it's something I, I wish we had a little more of in the game, and we'll get there eventually in a couple episodes, but... I think there is some reason for hope for that, but it just, there's Griffey's fingerprints everywhere in the game of baseball, and, and, and to some degree, his impact is almost immeasurable. Now, you know how the, these episodes go. You know how this works. 
there's really no need to debate Griffey's Hall of Fame credentials, right? He's in the Hall. We don't need to discuss that part. I think we all agree he's a deserved Hall of Famer. And, you know, to be fair, we're already running a little bit long. So we'll skip that part of the episode. Let's take our final break here, and then we'll come back and see where we want to place Griffey on, on the list. Welcome back. This is a really interesting ranking exercise for sure. But first, let's actually revisit the list itself. So, starting at number one, we have Sadaharu O. Number two is Satchel Page. Number three is Josh Gibson. Number four is Mickey Mantle. Number five is Greg Maddox. Number six is Mike Trout. Number seven is Ichiro. Number eight is George Brett. Number nine is Adrian Beltre. Number 10 is Shohei Otani. Number 11 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 12 is Edgar Martinez. Number 13 is Sandy Koufax. Number 14 is Tony Gwen. And number 15 is Hank Greenberg. Now jumping all the way down to number 20 is Kenny Lofton. Number 25 is David Ortiz. Number 30 is Ryan Sandberg. Number 35 is Home Run Baker. Number 40 is Vita Blue. Number 45 is Jamie Moyer. Number 50 is Ryan Braun. Number 55 is Jose Bautista. And number 60 is Cabrian Hayes. Number 65 is Aramis Ramirez. And finally, number 70, that's right, we're up to 70 now, is James Paxton. So, that's the list. Now, obviously, we we can jump pretty high up in the list here. Uh, Griffey's going to go in the top 10 here, based on what I was reading. So, I think we can start at the top 10 looking at Shohei Otani. Now, Otani likely approaches Griffey in cultural impact in a lot of ways. It'd be tough to start projecting whether or not Otani would meet or surpass Griffey in terms of career output. Uh, Otani sits right now at just 28.8 war, while Griffey has amassed 83.8 war. But then again, obviously Otani has his years in Japan as well. So it's not as cut and dry, but I think right now this might change another year or two. But for now, I think Griffey Jr. goes ahead of Otani, despite his current excellence and obviously his two-way play. I still put Griffey up above him for that. Now, you go to number nine, that's Adrian Beltre. Adrian Beltre outproduced Griffey in terms of war. And I think might be one of the few players who can match like his defensive prowess in terms of being one of the best fielders of his generation. But that's at third base, not center field. And I honestly don't think he has anywhere near the cultural impact that Griffey had. Uh, Beltre is beloved. But no one changed the way they looked at or approached the game or, or was a fan of the game based on Adrian Beltre or Griffey. That's absolutely the case. Griffey also had an MVP. And should have won at least one more, if not two, where Beltre has none. Griffey had him in almost all career hitting numbers as well. So I'm willing to go above Adrian Beltre there at number nine. George Brett, you know, is number eight. Brett put up 88.6 war compared to Griffey's 83.8 war. But Griffey hit over 300 more home runs than Brett while winning nine more gold gloves and putting up a nearly identical OPS+. plus. And while George Brett is a huge player in terms of telling the story of baseball, I think I give Griffey the edge there as well when it comes to culturally. Again, uh, we all still wear our, our hats backwards. Like it just, I, uh, I think he's got Brett beat there. So I think I'm going to put uh, Griffey up above George Brett there. So this moves us to Ichiro at number seven. Ichiro would have certainly outpaced Griffey when you factor in his time in Japan. I think I estimated in the Ichiro episode, he's probably somewhere in the 90 to 100 war level in terms of uh, war. 
if you, if we just took a guesstimate based off of of what he did in Japan and whatnot, and that matters. There you have to even if you factor in all that and factor in the Japan numbers, Griffey hit nearly 300 more home runs than Ichiro. They both won 10 Gold Gloves and an MVP award, but Griffey should have won multiple MVPs. I think I also said Ichiro should have as well, but 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 Griffey definitely has an argument that he should have won probably three. And then on the other hand, Griffey was nearly 30% better as a hitter according to OPS Plus, while outpacing Ichiro in runs and RBIs as well, even including the Japan numbers. And I think obviously they're equal culturally for both different, vastly different reasons, and actually similar reasons in many ways. But I just think I think the hitting numbers and, and with all things being equal, otherwise they both were great defenders. Uh, all those different things. I, I think Griffey goes ahead of Ichiro here too. And so that brings us to Mike Trout, and uh, I think this is where we meet our roadblock. Trout has already surpassed Griffey in WAR, despite play, only playing in 13 seasons, and so obviously we would expect him to keep building that lead. He's a three-time MVP. And a Rookie of the Year. Now, obviously, again, I feel like Griffey should have won Rookie of the Year. And he should have won more MVPs. But Trout did win those MVPs. And Trout is considered, like, is considered, Griffey is considered one of the most dominant players. And one of the best players of his generation. It's him and Bonds and Ramirez. And uh, there's an argument for several players as the most dominant player of his generation. It's just Trout. Trout is the most dominant player of his generation and the best player of his generation. It's not even close. No one comes close. And so I think that gives him a little bit of a bump up. But then on the other hand, Griffey has 300 more home runs than Trout. But Trout is also a career 174 OPS plus hitter, which is 40% uh, 40 points higher than Griffey. And Trout did it in a harder hitting environment, frankly, at least when in terms of home runs and different things like that. In fact, you, you can go back and listen to this in the Trout episode that I did. But from 2012 to 2019, Trout never finished worse than fourth in MVP voting. That's for seven years running. He doesn't finish worse than fourth in MVP voting. That's crazy. I love Griffey. He, he is one of the major reasons I love baseball. And I do think Griffey has had a far greater cultural impact than Trout. I, I think for Trout, when all is said and done, He's going to end up having been the better player by enough of a margin to make up for those cultural differences. And I think he gets, because he has that tag of the best player of his generation, I think he makes up for that cultural gap there uh, a little bit. And I think that's it. I think that's right where we put Griffey right now. That's at number seven on our list between Mike Trout and Ichiro. If you agree with that, let me know. Or if you disagree with it, you can... I'd love to debate it, and I'll probably let that settle. It's something sometimes I look back and go, oh, I would have moved this around after letting it settle in for a little bit. But but that's our episode. That is that is Ken Griffey Jr. at number seven on our list. One of the just the most iconic, memorable players in, in baseball history. There was I don't think there was ever a cooler player to ever play the game. And that's how cool he was. Uh, and that's how impactful he was just on baseball around it. I, again, I think... The closest we've ever seen is Jordan in basketball. That's where I'm making the comparison. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for listening. I So I think what we're going to do for next episode is to continue our sort of king of cool episode. We're going to look at cool in a different way and from a different perspective. So I think we're going to talk about another player from this era in Ricky Henderson, which is one of my favorite 
players and one of my favorite players to talk about. So we'll talk about, I think we're going to do Ricky Henderson for the next episode. And then what I'm planning is actually to do multiple players for the third episode in this little trio where we're going to, well, I'll take a lot of current players and modern players, you know, tell their story and do all that stuff, but also then debate if one of them is the heir to the King of Cool Mantle from Ken Griffey Jr. Do we have someone who fits that sort of, that sort of archetype? So that's what we're doing the next couple weeks. Thank you for joining me here on Thursday. We'll be back to Friday next week. But until then, everyone, you can reach me and the podcast at Daniel J. Port on Twitter. You can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter. Or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com if you have any comments, any uh, critiques, anything you want to see moved around the list, or just want to talk baseball or suggest a player to talk about. I, I'm all for it. I would love that. Uh, so please uh, shoot me a message. And on that, I mean, I know it's Thursday. We're not quite to the weekend yet, but either way, enjoy the rest of your week and your upcoming weekend. It looks like it's actually going to finally be a sunny day here in Denver, so I'm actually going to get out and play some softball tonight. So I'm looking forward to it, but enjoy, folks. And thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you.